0: JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this show is the Great Gaelic Revolt of the 1270s. In this episode we will look at Norman Ireland in the later 13th century in a story of revolt as generations of resentment among the dispossessed Gaelic Irish exploded into one of the great challenges to Norman domination of Ireland in the medieval period. Life in the medieval village of Sagarth in the early 13th century was pleasant. Having been founded not long after the Norman invasion of Ireland in 1169, it had grown from strength to strength. In the shadow of the Wicklow Mountains, south-west of Dublin, the peasants of this small settlement tilled their fields, lived, loved, grew old and died. Their world was slow to change, with life from one generation to the next remaining very similar. However, medieval Sagart was not completely cut off from the wider world. It was situated on the main road south through the Vale of Dublin, the lands between the medieval city and the mountains to its south, so travellers frequently brought news. The 15 day long Fair of Dublin held in July must have been a major attraction for peasants who could easily walk the 10 miles to the city. Likewise, the fairs of Maynooth in September and Nace in October must have been big events in the medieval calendar, when merchants from across Europe traded luxurious items such as spices and wine. Even though these goods were way beyond the peasants' purchasing power, the aroma alone must have been salivating. All in all, until the final 30 years of the 13th century, the lives of the peasants in the foothills of the Wicklow Mountains was by no means bad. While it's true, fatal diseases were rampant and famine, although rare, was never further away than a failed harvest and indeed the average lifespan ended around 40. These were the natural rhythms of medieval life across Europe from the Atlantic Ocean to the Black Sea. Between such tough times, people could enjoy the good years of plenty. On long summer's evenings, the peasants of Sagarth could look out over the lush vale of Dublin while they were regaled with songs and stories such as the medieval Irish epic of Dermot and the Earl which recounted the Norman conquest of Ireland and told how these peasants and their forefathers had come from Britain to live in the foothills of the Wicklow mountains. This lifestyle was not unique to Sagarth. All across the Vale of Dublin, the lands south of the city, dozens of settlements thrived in a similar fashion. Key to their success was the relatively peaceful relationship the settlers enjoyed with the neighbouring Gaelic Irish in the Wicklow Mountains. The Gaelic Irish could not be said to have enjoyed the benefits of the Norman conquest of Ireland. Indeed, if anything, the opposite was the case. They had lost power, prestige and land. High in the mountains, large numbers of Gaelic Irish had been resettled in the poor uplands where Norman rule was no more than overlordship. Meanwhile, in the lowlands, like at Sagarth, the Normans had transformed the lands the Gaelic-Irish had once ruled. The economy and society were fundamentally different now. Large numbers of peasants had come in from Wales and England to work the land, alongside some Gaelic peasants who had remained behind after the conquest. Despite this disenfranchisement, tensions remained surprisingly low. Indeed, intermarriage was common. Many Gaelic women married Norman settlers and moved to the colony. There were some exceptions of course to the peaceful relations, most notably in 1209 when there was a large scale attack at Cullenswood, that's the modern suburb of Ranola, when the Gaelic Irish from the Wicklow mountains rode down and massacred scores of colonists celebrating a festival a few miles from the city walls. However, all in all this was an era of limited large scale violence. Indeed, most towns were built without walls, as there was little need for such expensive defences. Indeed, the greatest threat to peace in the first century after the conquest was the ongoing factionalism between the Norman powers, and this was evident in the Wicklow region, where the Fitzgeralds, the Butlers, and, one that might surprise many people, the Archbishop of Dublin, vied for control over the region. While there was little outward expression of the resentment from the Gaelic Irish toward the Anglo-Normans, such sentiments did linger beneath the surface. It's not surprising really, is it? Even though many had been able to accommodate themselves into the new Norman structure, the Gaelic Irish had lost out massively by the invasion. Not only had they lost power and status, but they now lived in a world where they were second-class citizens, many being excluded from even using Norman law. While this wound of resentment would fester beneath the surface for decades when a vicious famine struck in 1270 these tensions became too great and nearly a century of pent-up rage exploded. 1270 proved to be the decisive year when heavy snows and poor weather made life for the Gaelic Irish high in the Wicklow Mountains unbearable. The poor weather was matched by a poor harvest, resulting in what the annals called great famine and scarcity in all airing later in the year. Initially, the trouble began far away from settlements like Sagarth. Deep in the Wicklow Mountains, where Norman control had always been tenuous, the first murmurings of revolt were felt. It appears trouble first broke out on the lands of the Archbishop of Dublin, most likely at Glenmalure. Where the O'Burns and O'Toole's had settled after the upheaval of the invasion. The famine after 1270 gave them no choice but to attack the richer Norman settlements. These raids, as we shall see, could be violent for anyone who stood in the way of the starving, alienated Gaelic Irish, and soon the Archbishop of Dublin, Fouque de Sanford, faced what he called a malicious rebellion in his lands. Unable to deal with the situation, he needed outside help calling on the King's representative, the Justicier James de Audley, to keep control. De Sanford, however, was an old hand in the Wicklow region, having been Archbishop since 1256. So, instead of just using force, he also sent a relation, John de Sanford, to Wicklow to negotiate with the Gaelic Irish in the mountains, and it seems that the situation was calmed, momentarily at least. But unquestionably, deep in the mountains, tensions were frayed. This was a fragile peace, and it would soon be blown apart when the entire Wicklow region faced what can only be described as a perfect storm. The year 1271, in any situation, would have been immensely difficult. As the harvest faltered again, producing the all too predictable food shortages and the annals reported a great famine so that multitudes of poor people died of cold and hunger and the rich suffered hardship. The reference to the rich suffering hardship is a measure of the depth of the famine and chronic food shortages faced by people that winter. The conditions in the Wicklow Mountains must have been unbearable. While this famine unquestionably destabilised the region further, worse was to follow when the Archbishop of Dublin and the greatest landholder in the region, Fouc de saint died. As one of the biggest landowners in the mountains, his death created a vacuum as his position was not properly filled until 1279. In the eight years between his death and the arrival of his successor, the Archbishop's lands in Wicklow were administered by royal officials who clumsily dealt with the very delicate situation. The combination of a starving people who already felt resentment at the conquest and officials who did not understand the situation led to an explosion of violence in 1271 as the Gaelic Irish now attacked settlements to the east of the mountains along the coastal plain of Wicklow. In a desperate measure to keep the peace, hostages were taken from the O'Burns and O'Toole's and a third family, the Harles, who had joined the revolt. Keeping the prisoners at Castle Kevin, a fortified settlement deep in the mountains, the authorities hoped that this would help to keep the peace. However, the Justice Year James de Audley still had to arrive in person in the valley of Glendalough near Castle Kevin in 1272 to try and quell the continued violence, but the situation was clearly getting out of control. Little is known of de Audley's mission that year, but the fact that his war horse was killed, for which he was later compensated 25 marks, indicates the fighting did not go well. It was clear the Audley was not up to the task and he was replaced by a new justiciar, Maurice Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald, who attempted to attack the Gaelic Irish in the remote valley of Glenmalure in April 1273, but he also failed. As the wider Wicklow region slipped into open violence, the new King of England, Edward I, was returning from crusade in the Middle East. In 1273, he took a hands on approach and appointed Geoffrey de Janville, who was the Lord of Trim in Mead and a fellow crusader, as justiciar to resolve the situation. Having fought the great Mamluk Sultan, Baybars, in the Middle East, de Janville was an experienced soldier and seemingly what was needed in the situation. But Geoffrey de Genville would soon learn the mountains and passes of Wicklow were a world away from the searing heat of the eastern Mediterranean. Before we continue, I would like to take a quick break. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy, and BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash History today to get 10% off your first month. That's better H-E-L-P dot com slash Irish History. With the revolt and attacks on the colonial settlements in full swing in 1274, Geoffrey de Jeanville, the new just this year, sanctioned the first major attack into the mountains. This foray had a distinctly crusader feel about it. It was not led by the Jeanville himself, but instead by the warrior monks, the Knights Hospitaller and their Grand Master in Ireland, the Prior William FitzRoger. The Hospitallers had a major foundation just west of medieval Dublin, where the suburb of Kilmainham stands today. The other major military order in the city, the Knights Templar, could not participate as they were explicitly forbidden to fight fellow Christians. The Hospitallers were joined by soldiers from across the Norman colony but despite the impressive force that left Dublin under the Hospitaller flag of a white cross emblazoned on a black standard the heavy cavalry they deployed when they reached the heavily wooded mountainous terrain of Wicklow was not up to the task. In the mountain passes they were routed by the more mobile Gaelic Irish and the Grand Master of the Knights Hospitaller, William Fitzroger and the Sheriff of Limerick, Oliver Le were two of the prisoners taken, only to be released later in a prisoner exchange. This great victory for the Gaelic Irish was a clear sign, if one was needed, that the revolt was getting completely out of control. While the victory deflated the Normans, it served to have the opposite effect on the Gaelic Irish. Up to 1274, the revolts had been led by the O'Toole's and O'Burns. Historically, the overlords of these two families had been the powerful MacMurra family from South Wicklow. They, however, had developed a good relationship with the Normans and were even related to the Lord of Carlow, Roger Bigot. However, by 1274, it was clear that their dominant position within the Gaelic community of Wicklow was being challenged by those leading this successful revolt. Unwilling to allow this position be usurped by the O'Burns or the O'Toole's, Mwocatoc MacMurrah and his brother Art led their wider family into open rebellion. Soon a vast arc of territory from East Wickrow through the Vale of Dublin and into the northern Barrow Valley was in danger of attack. Life in the prosperous community of Sagarth in the foothills of the mountains was devastated in raid after raid, making life untenable. In one raid that we know about, the Gaelic-Irish swept down on Sagarth, attacking the peasants in broad daylight, killing 40 people as they worked in the fields. We can only begin to imagine the terror of life in these exposed settlements. Unsurprisingly, many tenants fled their homes after attacks which killed relatives and did not return for years. Successive raids on Sagarth devastated the community. We know that at least 3,000 sheep, 200 cattle, 200 pigs, silver and even clothes were listed by the community in an inventory of goods stolen. However, their fate was by no means unique. Dozens, perhaps hundreds of raids during this period saw numerous communities that ringed the Wicklow Mountains suffer a similar fate. We get a glimpse of what life in these settlements must have been like a few decades later when an entire village who were clearly living on tenterhooks fled their homes after just hearing the words "Fella Abu, the war cry of the O'Toole's. No doubt, many people went to sleep at night, wondering would they awake to find their homes being burned and pillaged. The level of destruction appears to have been at its worst at Castle Kevin, a settlement on the other side of the Wicklow Mountains, close to Glendelock. Between 1271 and 1277 the lands around Castle Kevin yielded only 8 pounds, 14 shillings and 10 a half pence. This was down from the 56 pounds recorded for the year 1229 alone. De Jeanville, the great soldier was clearly failing and in 1275 he tried to defeat the Gaelic Irish and stabilise the situation in the mountains but again he failed. It was clear by the middle of the 1270s the revolt, which was in its fifth year, had no sign of abating. Indeed the only consolation that year was the capture of Morkathoch MacMurrah alive. While the Jeanville may have hoped this would blunt the rebel's spirit, it only served to clear the way for the rise of Morkathoch's brother, Art, who above all others would go on to haunt the colonists, as he became synonymous with raids and attacks. Indeed, it wouldn't be long before de himself would become acquainted with art. By 1276, the king in England, Edward I, was putting major pressure on de to resolve the situation in Wicklow. De had been appointed just this year, three years earlier, and it was clear he was failing abysmally. A revolt that had started in East Wicklow now had drawn in all the Gaelic Irish in the region and a vast swathe of the colony from Carlow to Dublin was vulnerable. That year of 1276, De Dijonville organised another mission. He staked everything on this new attack. He himself alone brought a force of over 2,000 vassals from his lands in Meath. He was joined by other magnates from across Ireland including Thomas de Clare, the Lord of Thomond. This enormous force based themselves in Newcastle in East Wicklow but this was far from ideal as it was at least a day's march from their target, the mountain pass of Glenmalure where the Gaelic Irish were based. For de Jeanville, as he led his force into the Wicklow Mountains, he could not possibly have gotten further from the deserts of the Middle East where he had fought just a few years previously. Glenmalure was a long, narrow, steep side of valley in a remote region of South Wicklow. Heavily forested, the valley favoured the defenders led by Arth MacMurrah and the disaster that awaited the Jeanville could not have been imagined as they had left the fortress at Newcastle. They were not only defeated, but this time the army was trapped in the mountain pass by the Gaelic Irish they were reduced to dire straits, and according to the annals of Clonmacnoise, they were forced to eat their horses. Some would eventually escape, including de Jeanville, although he was heavily wounded. This finished his career as just this year. He would not be able to resolve the ever-growing situation, and in 1277 he was replaced by Ralph de Ufford, who would go on to launch yet another campaign. The Ufford was a far more clever strategist, and he picked a more suitable base of operations at Castle Kevin, situated far closer to Glenmalure and Glendeloch. Finally, in that summer of 1277, the Ufford enjoyed a military victory, driving the Gaelic Irish from Glenmalure. This campaign must have been horrifically brutal. Glenmalure was not just a military base, but it was the home to hundreds of Gaelic families. Nevertheless, Dawford's great victory pacified the region to a limited degree. In a letter he wrote to the king, he summarised the situation. The affairs in Ireland are much improved. However, he went on to note, the thieves who were in Glendolourie, what the Normans called Glendolour, have departed. Many of them have gone to another strong place. During this successful campaign of 1277, the settlement of Castle Kevin was transformed into a military fortress in an attempt to shore up Norman control in East Wicklow. In the aftermath, it appears the region was relatively pacified and revenues from the lands surrounding Castle Kevin soared to 118 pounds, 3 shillings and 2 pence, over 10 times the amount that had been collected in the previous 6 years it was obvious that the peasants could return and safely work the land. However, it was not to last and by April 1279, raiding had broken out again. No money at all was received from Castle Kevin during these first three months of 1279 as tenants yet again fled their lands. But unquestionably the revolt was running out of steam. The offered seemed to have landed a catastrophic blow in 1277. Nonetheless, in the following years, sporadic violence would erupt. In 1281, no taxes were returned from Castle Kevin again, along with the manors at Kilmacburn and Kilmaston, due to what was described as war with the Irish. For people trying to survive at Castle Kevin, life during this period must have been unbearable. While the revolt was petering out in the early 1280s, the New Justiciar of Ireland, the Archbishop of Waterford, Stephen de Fulburn, was willing to keep the peace by literally any means. In 1282 there were murmurings of a fresh revolt and when the two McMurray brothers arrived in Arclo, having been summoned there to travel to England, de Fulburn took action to ensure they would not go back to war. Before the two men could board ship, an assassin, Geoffrey de Pencote, acting on the Fulburns' orders, killed the two McMurra brothers. The assassination had the desired effect as what little attacks there had been now petered out. Although the revolt ended, the events of the 1270s had shattered the peace that had reigned in the region, and this would never be rebuilt. In 1295 a ferocious cycle of violence began when famine drove the Gaelic Irish into revolt again. This time it would not be contained, and by the 1320s a vast tract of Wicklow had fallen from Norman control. Despite the fact that widespread violence and depredation followed in the decades to come, it was always the memory of the revolt of the 1270s, and in particular Arthur MacMurrah, who haunted the colonists' imagination over the following years in 1305 when a woman mariotta de riddlesford arrived in court in castle dermot in the shade of the wicklow mountains she had to prove her age one of the witnesses william wyden testified that he could remember mariotta's birthday to the 21st of july 1282 this was not a date to forget but not because mariotta de riddlesford had been born but because as william wyden went on to testify it was on that day that Arth MacMurrah was slain and it is known in the whole country that 23 years have passed since Arth MacMurrah was slain. At Sagarth, the village that was destroyed, his memory would last a lot longer. Incredibly, in 1343, over six decades after Arth MacMurrah had been assassinated, the tenants referenced time of the war of Arth MacMurrah as a reason why they had large debts owing to the crown. Although no one could possibly have remembered Arth or the raids, it was clear he had entered popular culture of the 14th century in Ireland. It's not surprising really though, he was integral to the revolt which saw Norman life in the region become a struggle for survival, one that will continue for decades. Don't forget, if you want to see the sights associated with this fascinating subject, book your place on the tour now at History. At Irish History Until next time, Sloan. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Uh-oh.